we're dealing with the subject of uh, eschatology or uh, the end times and the study of lost things, a variety of different ways. I'm sure your son has equipped you pretty well already um, to understand uh, the complexity of this. So, morning. All right, so the Bible teaches us that everything is moving towards a goal. Um, New Testament calls it a telos, right? A pointed end. And there are only three persons who can speak from outside of that perspective. Who are those persons? Well, there you go, yeah. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. I've often asked the question, and people are like, three persons? John MacArthur, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, no, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They, they are the only persons who speak outside of the perspective of time. And so when they speak, they speak from a place of authority because they're the only ones who knows the beginning from the end, right? This is what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that God Himself is eternal, and uh, an eternal being, by necessity, is outside of the bounds of time. Therefore, when he makes things known to his servants in the Word, he is making them known outside of the bounds of time. He is showing us a picture and glimpse of the ends and the middle and, and the beginning, all from his perspective, which is all happening simultaneously at once. He doesn't not bound by it. He's not within it. He's totally outside of it. So we can know that when we receive things from God, we receive them on the ground of someone who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> but when we come to interpreting what God has revealed, there are a plethora of opinions and interpretations. And, and the reason why this is so is because it, it's, it's a very complex matter. We have a good 1,500 years of Bible history where God has spoken to his people. And in that whole period of history, we have every single book of the Bible is littered with prophetic announcements of what is to come. And sometimes these prophetic announcements happen from our vantage points, have already occurred, and some of them are still yet to come. So where we are in our position in history is that we often look back at things that have already happened, and we also look forward to things that have not yet happened that are still to come. Um, but sometimes the saints of Scripture would be speaking from a place where things that have happened for us are still to take place. right? So, so eschatology can be a, a very complex subject because... Once, you have to determine if you're speaking about something that's already happened. Um, can anyone give me an example of something that perhaps has already happened that we have to try and figure out if they're speaking about something to come or that's already happened? Any examples? Give us. Speak, speak up, and you can take your law school for you said. Um, in, in the Army, one book we always argue about was On War by Clausewitz, um, and talking about how to think about war and strategy. And it's written, you know, in the 1700s, so, you know, you got 200 years of different people arguing different interpretations, you know, just like right. the Bible, and not, still not being a common agreement of this is specifically what he's talking about, because you talk Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of something specifically that has been prophesied in the Bible that's already happened that people debate about. <laughs> but, but if you want to read these secondary literatures as scripture, <laughs> I'm just kidding with you. Um, something, we're looking about something that's been prophesied that's happened from our vantage point already in the past, but people kind of try and discern if it's still to happen. Ben? Yes, like the return for exile. For example, there were prophecies, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, that spoke about the exile, that it was going to happen. And the exile did happen, but there were also prophecies about the return of the exiles, right? And so sometimes we're wondering, if we read the book of Daniel, who was living in the exile, speaking about the return of the exile, is he speaking about the return of the exile, or is he speaking about the end times, right? Another one of that that's really important is uh, Matthew 24, 25, uh, where Jesus speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to come, but he also speaks about his own return. And we kind of have to try and decipher, is he speaking about a time when he's speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to happen, 
at the end times when the new temple's been built and erected? Or is he speaking about 70 AD that did occur? And uh, how does the second coming relate to that? So there are complexities involved in the study of eschatology that we need to try and figure out. But to be clear, the the study of the end times and the study of of the last things, as eschatology means, the study of last things, therefore, um, from our position, especially our position in this lesson, we're going to be looking at the things that are yet to come from our vantage point. Um, Particularly, as we will be looking at the next three lessons after this one, you'll be looking at the return of Christ, um, the final judgment, the eternal state. These are all still things that are yet to come, that we are yet to experience ourselves from our perspective. But that introduction gives us an understanding of why it can be a very complex uh, subject. And while a lot of people say, oh, that's not for me, (laughs) you know, have you ever heard someone say, I'm a pan millennialist, right? It all just pan out at the end. I don't, I don't worry about the eschatology or the end times or it's too confusing for me, it's complex. And then you've got other people, for example, that, that won't even associate with you if, if you hold to a different position on them on eschatology, right? You've got these two extremes, people who don't care about how it's going to happen, it's just going to happen, and other people who like, are so dogmatic about their position that if you don't hold to that same position, they, they will not even fellowship with you. Uh, those two extremes are to be avoided in the study of eschatology. Uh, the reason why eschatology is God himself revealing to his people what is to take place and sometimes what has already taken place. And, and the reason for this is he's inspiring confidence in his people to persevere through the trials that we face on a daily basis. Uh, this is his word. This is his plan, his purposes. So we don't want to just say, well, it's not important. It's going to happen. We want to study it because we get hope from this. We draw our, our confidence in God's purposes from this. We get an insight of what's going to take place from this. We understand that the greatest uh, revealing aspect of eschatology is that Jesus wins, very simply, right? At the end, Jesus will return. He'll establish his kingdom. He'll conquer all the evil. He'll set all things right. And just knowing those things gives us hope to persevere through the trials we face now. So it's really important for us to study eschatology. But we shouldn't be so dogmatic about positions because most people are looking at what the Bible teaches about prophecy, announcements, and those events, and trying to make sense of all of them. And so when we come to the study of eschatology, we've got to do so humbly, uh, humbly understanding that other people are also looking to the Bible, are also looking to the Scriptures to give us hope and confidence to persevere through the trials that we face. I want to say here, just by one way of introduction as well, that as we approach this, we're going to understand that we are living in the last days as the New Testament speaks. These are the last days. This is the final age. This is the last period of history. God is not revealing any more things uh, to His servants. Revelation is complete with the final book of Revelation. His Word is complete, and therefore everything that we have in Scripture is what we have to give us confidence about the things that will take place. So there's no more waiting for new revelations. God has spoken finally and fully in His Son. He's revealed it fully to His apostles, and He's concluded it with a final book, the book of Revelation, to give us an inside picture of what is to take place. So, So we're not waiting out for any more revelations to take place. Some people will tell you that, but that's not true. God has spoken fully and finally, and everything we have in His Word is sufficient for giving His believers confidence in His promises that we may persevere through the trials and tribulations we face on a daily basis. So His Word is sufficient. You can trust it. You can bank on it. And these are the last days. Jesus will return. No one knows the hour or the days He said Himself, but He will return and He will set all things right. In the present period, what we do is we look at the Scriptures to give us that confidence and hope in what is to come. I read this morning from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, and it's good for us to be reminded once again that there is a blessing in those who, who seek out and try to understand what is to take place. Why? The blessing resides in the hope and the confidence that it gives to us, that we can trust our God, that what He says is true, 
and what he had promised to his, to his, his people will come to pass. The main idea of uh, this lesson is that believers ought to live with eager anticipation and holy trepidation because God's plan to restore all things in Christ is quickly approaching its fulfillment. That's a mouthful. I'll say it again. The main idea, and it's written there on your page, believers ought to live with eager anticipation. You see that eagerness, eager anticipation, and holy trepidation, holy fear, because God's plan to restore all things in Christ is quickly approaching its fulfillment. We are closer today than we were yesterday. We move along the line of time, but God is beyond and outside of time. He will restore all things in one day according to Him. It's like a thousand years. But for us, as we wait, and it drags on 2,000 years later, we still have to understand that He will bring things to a conclusion in Christ. And that's the confidence we draw from studying the subject. So what are the main elements of our eschatological hope? Or what are the main elements, the main ingredients? So while there are many opinions out there, <laughs> and they're, they're, they're a dime a dozen, right? You can get an opinion on every street corner these days. Um, while there are many opinions about what's going to happen in the end, um, there are some really basic elements that, are, that everyone who holds diverse opinions on this can agree on. And I think... Uh, our statement of faith, which is recorded for you right there, that we find on the DRBC um, website, the statement of faith of this church really summarizes all the basic elements. Can someone read that for me, for me that's um, statement of faith that's right there? Stand up, take up your mask, project your voice, um, whoever's going to read it for me. Ben Robin, I'll, I'm going to select you because you have a loud voice. So that's the statement of faith of this church right here. Why, why don't we just put a Bible verse there, <laughs> you know, as the statement, right? Aren't we, aren't we a people who adhere to the Scripture and Scripture alone and the theology of the Scripture? Why don't we just put a section or a paragraph from the Scriptures there that will capture that? Well, that's because, uh, once again, the study of eschatology is so broad, and uh, there's many different passages that point to the truths that are found in the statement of faith. The statement of faith does not replace the Scriptures, but it it teaches what the Scriptures teach. That's what we adhere to. This is what we believe the Bible teaches in summary form. <laughs> so really just a paragraph of what the whole Bible teaches on eschatology right there in, one, in summary form. It's, it's very helpful um, to have something like that which you can just grab hold of to understand the complexity of a large subject as such as this. But there are the basic elements. And let's, let's take a look at some of those basic elements as we go through. One of the first basic elements is found is that the end is now. <laughs> All right? The end is now. Who wants to read uh, 1 John 2 verse 18? Thanks. Stand up and project your voice if you, if you can. All right. So what is that text referring to? The last hour. All right. When did John write that? 90 AD, round about, right? 90, 92. So it's quite a long time ago from our perspective. And he believed that he was living in, in the last hour, the last period. Um, this should give us confidence that 
as the believers back then held the same confession, so we do too. As they suffered the same suffering, so we do too, presently. And their hope was grounded in the same truth, that Jesus will return. We have that same hope in our present time. Of course, some people would ask, you know, well, when will that come? And, and, and many people are curious about that ending. Right? How many books have been written on the, on the subject, right? How many predictions have been made? How many people have given up homes and livelihoods to follow those predictions? Um, I remember, I think it was, who was the guy back in 2008 who predicted the end of the world and at a certain date, certain time, and people sold properties and, uh, you know, they actually cashed in and gave, gave them wealth away, waiting to be raptured up and taken away in, in light of this man's prophecies. And uh, one really smart businessman went away and insured, insured everyone's uh, dogs and their pets. He said he'll take care of their pets for a fee when they all leave. And he became very wealthy because obviously no one left. <laughs> and, and so he got the money ahead <laughs> of time, but the, he didn't have to take care of the pets. The world looks on at us as, and, and think we're foolish when we put dates and times. And, and we should do, do that as well. We should look at that as foolish because Scripture does not give us a date and time. It's not how God works. What He does, He gives us promises. And, and we as His people trust those promises by faith. But He doesn't just give promises. He, right throughout history, He's given promises that have been fulfilled. So we don't just look to the future, but we look to the past. What is the one key promise that has been fulfilled in history that we look back to? Can anyone? What do you look back to mostly? What does the church look back to? Sorry, can you say that again? Yes. Very simply, the coming of Jesus. His death announced, Isaiah 53. Um, his resurrection, which is promised right throughout Psalm 2 and other passages. Um, Peter preaches exactly on those. And then, of course, his ascension into glory right before the disciples' eyes. All of those things had been prophesied years before the coming of Christ, fulfilled in his coming. And now he himself spoke and said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come back, which we're going to look at next week. The return of Christ is still imminent. So we look at God's past promises fulfilled to give us confidence for His future promises. So yes, sure, as it seems from our perspective, time is just dragging on. We've got to understand from His perspective, being outside of time, and one day when we are in glory fully and finally, time is going to take on a very different meaning to what it does now. Right now we live with curiosity. We want to know. But what God gives us is promises. And it gives us fast past fulfillment of promises to give us confidence for future fulfillment of promises. So believers, look at his promises. Don't look at the false prophets and their announcements. Look at the promises. The end is now. We're living in the last periods. The end is near. For example, um, we can read 1 Peter 4 verse 12. I'm just going to pick one verse from this every time. 1 Peter 4 verse 12. Who's going to pick that one up for us? But then it continues, Rejoice insofar as you share in sufferings of Christ, so you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Um, sorry, that one continues right throughout. Huh. I think it's a little bit back. A fiery trial, insulted. I think that reference is wrong. I apologize for that. Verse 7, verse 
Yeah, I think so. I just want to make a note here. Thank you. Can you read verse 7 for us? Yeah. The end of all things is at hand. There you go. What was that? Yeah, that's it. Okay. Read it. Therefore be self-controlled and self-reminded for the sake of your prayer. Perfect. All right. So if you have that reference in your notes, you can just uh, make a note for verse 7 rather than verse 12. I apologize for that. There you go. The th- end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What an interesting thing. All right. The end is imminent, so be self-controlled, <laughs> be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, so your prayers themselves may give you confidence in the promises of God. But the Scripture is very clear right throughout Scripture, Revelation chapter 1. Um, the end is near. The ending of Revelation as well ends once again. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, with John's expectation and his hope in the return of Jesus. The, the end will come upon us like a thief in the night, and says Jesus. It will be like the days of Noah where people are giving a marriage and taking marriage and having a good time and, and living life. It will be like, Noah, uh, like uh, Job's children, right? They were out in the, in the party house having a good time with their friends and, and their end came just like that. And so it will be for, for everyone who lives up until that final day when Christ returns. It, we, we'll be living life as normal, right? We'll be going on. It's not like you know, waking up the one morning and say, today it is going to be the last day. No, it's not going to happen like that. It's going to come so suddenly. And when it happens, it's going to be a fearful thing to observe. Because that's the final opportunity that people had. It's over. From there on, there's no more opportunity to repent. When Jesus returns, that's it. The final judgment will happen. And so, so it's really a scary thing as well. Some of the big pictures we have of this in, in history is when Assyria came in and took out the northern kingdom of Israel, and people in the southern kingdom were observing that and how they wrote about that. And it's such a fearful thing because Assyria just arrived, and they, they, they wiped out the northern kingdom. They literally took everyone away never to return again. It came upon them very quickly. They were living life as normal, and the judgment came. You can think of Sodom and Gomorrah, perhaps, as well, when the angels were there, and the people even had an opportunity to repent because of the presence of the angels, but they didn't. And the next day, judgment came upon him. Or how about Noah, as he preached for so long, but the day that judgment came, it came quickly. It started raining, and people realized time was up. So it will be when Jesus returns, the time will be up. He will return. That's the state of promise right throughout Scripture. Matthew 24, verse 44, John 14, verse 1 to 3, Acts 1, verse 9 to 11. But one of the greatest promises of Jesus' return is found in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 to 16. Can someone read that for us? Garrett, how about you? Yes, just one, 11 and 12, yeah. Yeah, just that. So look at that. There's there's the picture of, of the return of Christ. It's he's he's depicted as a warrior, a conquering king, arriving on this great white horse of justice. And that's supposed to, if you look at that passage and you read the entirety of it, it's supposed to invoke in you, as we said in the beginning, like holy trepidation. Like, wow, what an awesome scene that will be. Um, it's, in the time that John was writing, it's, it's like the Roman generals that were arriving on the conquering scene of, 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 of the barbarians, for example. When they, when they conquered them, the Roman general would arrive on the scene and they would know that their judgment is imminent because Rome has arrived and they'd send pleas to the people to join Rome long before and the people had rebelled and rebelled, and eventually Rome comes. And there is the general on his big horse riding it. Jesus is depicted like a big general arriving finally to give account for people that have rebelled continuously against his word, continuously against his people, and the judgment then is going to be final. And he arrives as a warrior. Now that's in contrast to the Jesus of popular culture, isn't it? And Jesus of popular culture is depicted how? 
you know, he's your best buddy. Um, uh, he's just, you know, the nice guy, the hippie who just loves everyone. <laughs> you know, he's my homeboy, right? The way in which people perceive of who Jesus is, meek and mild, someone to walk on, he's not going to harm anyone, is going to be very different to the Jesus when he returns in final judgment. And so, so the, these visions of who Jesus is should keep us sober about the return when he comes, because it should inspire us to live a holy life, right? This is, this is our king. This is who he's going to be. And, you know, when he returns, if you're on his side, you're going to be with him as he goes and conquers. You're going to be on the right side of this military might. That's going to be return. And he's going to be very gentle towards his people. But towards those who oppose him, it's going to be very severe. One of the great truths that we have given to us and about of the last days is the resurrection. Right? Jesus will raise the dead, Scripture teaches us. This is taught in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Was The Jewish hope had a hope of the resurrection to come, physical resurrection. Um, and this is, this is one of the most glorious truths in Scripture, friends. Uh, have you spent much time thinking about the eternal state when you will be raised to life again? I encourage you to spend time to... to some people are right, well, I need something, someone to help me with my imagination, right? Uh, I have a very vivid imagination, so I get to picture things. And I, I, love, I sat for six hours one day in my chair thinking about the eternal state. What would, what would it be like? And it's, it's impossible. Because I can't think of life without suffering, without pain. I can't imagine life without sin, without temptation. I couldn't. I try to think of life without that. And, and it was impossible. And I have a really good imagination. But Scripture gives us indications of what it's going to be like. Right? It gives us glimmers and hopes. It's, and it's intended for you to, to fuel your mind with that so that you would think on that, so that you would hope for that. And say, yeah, that's what I want. I want a life like that. I want to be raised where I'm not going to be tempted by anything. I want to be able to use all of my potential for good all the time. And that's what it's going to be like in, in some agglomerance. You know? We're going to be raised to life, and you are going to be able to use all of your potential that God has given you for good all the time to His glory. Can you imagine that? All of us want to do good, Right? That we find ourselves like Paul in Romans 7 doing, doing the things we don't want to do. And we like, sometimes we just, oh, what a wretched man I am, just like him. Or like John, come Lord Jesus, just make that time now. But that resurrection hope of what that's going to be like, it's one of the key, key promises that we have that we look back on on Jesus. He was raised to life. And so we know that it's going to happen because it happened to him. And he promises that he will raise his people to life. And then there's going to be no more tears. You know, I often think about, I love movies like Interstellar, maybe, you know, space travels, science fiction. I love, I love thinking of the possibility of, of just being able to explore the galaxies to the glory of God for eternity and just see what it teaches about Him. I just think we're going to have so much accessibility, but people find it hard to believe, uh, to think of those things, because we have this false picture of what it's going to be like. We're going to be in heaven playing harps on clouds, you know. We're, this boring existence that some people think about it. It's going to be very much like we know it. We're going to be, we're going to be human beings, <laughs> as God intended for us to be. And we're going to be exploring and building. We're going to be doing the things that we're doing, just without sin, without corruption, all of our potential. How much of our human, the human brain gets used? I think Einstein used, what, 6% of his brain? Which means we created for capacity. That's what teaches. Like we created for more than we have. Imagine the day that we can use all of the capacity that God has given us without hindrance for the good of all people and to His glory. That's a glorious truth. Scripture points out this, Daniel 12, verse 2, Luke 14, verse 14. But especially in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13. And 1 Thessalonians is just such a comforting passage for those of us who, who really have lost loved ones to death who are believers. Because it says here, 
Paul writing to the church in Thessalonica and encouraged them with these words. Verse 13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who, do, who have no hope. <laughs> you know, grieving as ones who have no hope. We've all been to funerals like that. It's hard. We might have all loved, lost loved ones like that. I have. And it's hard when there's no hope. But when you grieve with hope, <laughs> this is what it's going to be like. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That's a promise that we have from the Lord. That's a prophetic announcement right there. That we will meet and greet those who have lost in the Lord again one day. We'll be resurrected and united in Christ. And it's a beautiful truth to come keep you uh, through the trials of the present time. Jesus will judge all people. Friends, He is the king who sits upon the throne. This Jesus, whom you worship, whom you entrust your life to, whom you receive comfort from through His Spirit, who gives you all these promises in His Word, this Jesus is a king, and He will judge all people. Now, there's a lot of disagreement and, and discussion about who's going to get judged and how this will happen. Will unbelievers be judged for their deeds given in the just judgment of condemnation? Or will believers not have their sins counted against them because of what Christ has done? You know, how's it going to look? And scriptures are very clear. All people will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I believe that His people are going to be vindicated. And I think as passages like Isaiah 25 to 27, which depicts the final judgment in Revelation chapter 20, we have, we have the unbelievers, those who are cast out into outer darkness eventually. When you have those who did not trust and who oppose Him, who are His enemies, will be on one side and His people will be on one side. He'll separate the sheep from the goats. And, uh, and, and the whole universe will look on at the mystery of the salvation of His people. And the whole universe will glorify God for His grace and salvation of His people because all of us standing there will not deserve it. That's the one key thing that people will look on and say, wow, these people are no different. You know, why, do, why are they saved and not them? And it's because of God's grace, because of His mercy. That's the only reason, because of His wisdom. And there'll be no cause for us to say, oh, well, we, look at us. You see, we chose team A. <laughs> we're, we're victors because we, we just chose the right guy. We took the right captain. There'll be none of that. There'll be humility from His people, falling down before His throne, praising Him for His grace. And I, and I think there'll be final weeping for the lost. Because the Scripture tells us that He's going to wipe away our tears. So I do think there's going to be a final weeping when He's going to finally wipe away those tears and a grieving and a mourning because not even God rejoices in the destruction of the wicked. There'll be no rejoicing. There'll be understanding, but there'll be no rejoicing on that great day. Amos tells Israel, the northern kingdom, to not long for the great day to come, for the day of the Lord to come. Don't long for it. Because it's a day of terror and destruction. Don't long for it. It's a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an awful and gloomy and dark day. And we too, in the same way, have to have these mixed emotions about it because we know that there are people that we know right now that don't know Jesus. And if He comes back tomorrow, loved ones that we know, they'll be standing on the wrong side of eternity. So there's got to be the sorrow as well and the propelling of us to go out and tell people and plead Hey, this day is coming. <laughs> like, plead with your loved ones. And we don't do that. I just spent uh, 
Thanksgiving with, with my wife's family, and, and most of them don't, don't believe. And, uh, try, you know, try and strike up conversations, and, you know, through the prayers, perhaps they'll, they'll come to wonder and ask. But sometimes I wonder about myself when I was studying this while I was staying there. I was like, if I knew this was going to happen, would I not be pleading with them? Hey, friends, come on, the last day is coming. Just believe. So it changes the way we live in the present, knowing that we will all stand before His judgment seat and it will be final. The judgment is final and eternal. Scriptures are clear about that. Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 9. Isaiah 51, verse 11. Isaiah 60, verse 19. Great book on eschatology. Hebrews 9, verse 27. Can someone pick that up for me? Hebrews 9, verse 27. And if you know it out your head, you can just shout it out. Such a famous passage. Go ahead, Ben. Yes. It's appointed for each man to die once and then face a judgment. It's appointed. That text tells you that God is in control. So it's appointed for every single person to die once. No reincarnation. No second chances. And then face a judgment. It, it kind of speaks to the eternality of God as well. I kind of have this view that as soon as you, know, you step outside of time, you kind of step into, into the reality of what that is. Whether you're facing and waiting for judgment in, in what people call Hades or hell or waiting for that prison, that, that place before you get judged finally. Can you imagine being there for, for that period of time, knowing what's coming? You can almost see the judgment and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it. And all you've got to think about is all the opportunities you had in life. It's pointed for one person to die once and then face a judgment. It's a fearful text. Matthew 13, verse 36 to 43, 49 to 50, Mark 9, verse 43 to 49, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 to 18, 2 Thessalonians 5, verse 1 to 10. The day of the Lord, as Paul reminds. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon him as labor pains come upon pregnant women and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night in darkness. And so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For since we belong to the Lord, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful promise to his believers, right? God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that alone should keep you going. You know, it's right there. He's obtained me for salvation. He hasn't destined me for wrath. I know my destiny. It doesn't have to be some career path or some, you know, mystery person that I might meet to fulfill my life. He's obtained me. He's destined me for salvation. The most beautiful thing in all heaven and earth. Do we have any uh, questions about that section? Yes. So, in the statement of faith, it says that we'll be, we'll be judged as innocent, sinless, conscious, and judgment in hell. Right. How, where would you, I don't know, where would you go in Scripture to disprove it or to affirm it? I don't know. Yeah, Daniel, for the Old Testament, Daniel's a, a, a great passage. The, the reason that John Stott held, held on to that position is, is because uh, 
he believed the Old Testament was very much silent on, on the nature of, of conscious torment and, and the Jewish belief uh, was pretty much an annihilationism. You know, the righteous will live and be raised, raised to life, everything else will just die like animals. Ecclesiastes kind of gives you that, that idea that we're no different to the animals, we kind of die like them. And, and, um, and so there was a, a position in Judaism that, that held to that based upon uh, especially the Torahs, the first five books of Moses, which is really silent on, on the matters. But, but the, the Bible really is about, you know, um, progressive revelation, right? We, we receive certain things and, and more of it gets revealed later on. Um, so to hold it all in balance, Daniel in the Old Testament is a fantastic book to, return, uh, to turn to. Um, let me just flip over to... Daniel chapter 12. In um, verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, um, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Um, and the indication there very strongly is, is that what we are raised to is everlasting. It doesn't end. And annihilationism is it's going to end. Some will be everlasting life, and the implication is joy and abundance, and that comes with that. And some to everlasting shame and contempt, which is continuously something that you feel, right? Shameful, contempt. Um, and so that's a very clear passage in the Old Testament um, that speaks to the resurrection of the good, the just, and the unjust. But Jesus, of course, when you turn to the Gospels... <laughs> spoke more about money and hell than any other subject. So when we get to, to Jesus and he, how he explains the eternal life of what's going to come, we have a very clear picture that um, everyone's going to be raised to life and the judgment that everyone's going to face, and especially the New Testament authors that follow, follow that, there's going to be a very clear understanding that, that there's life. Once we, Doug Wilson says it very well in his book on parenting, which is very sobering for a parent, <laughs> uh, when I read it, he said, once you've brought a life into this world, you've lit a spark that will never die. And, uh, and that's, that's true that of, of people. Once we are born, you know, there's a life there that will never, never die. You, know? you want to get scientific about energy that will never die. You, know? <laughs> you can you prove it by science, right? No, but the reality is the scripture teaches very clearly that, that once we have life, we have that. And uh, it's going to be eternal. Um, in that sense, from that point on. We're not eternal because we don't live from eternity past to eternity future, but we will have everlasting. We will live forever. And um, that one of that is going to be in a conscious torment. And Jesus depicts that very clearly, where people are screaming out in agony. And, and uh, how that's going to be, if it's going to be in a fire, or a, these apocalyptic language terms that describe a reality that is, that is going to be really severe and, and devastating. Um, yeah. There's a really good book called Hell Under Fire. I think it's Robin Peterson um, who takes on all of these modern arguments and uh, has recently read a th thing about 2008 or 2009, um, so, which really answers all, uh, all of those, those positions very clearly. Yeah, it's a very, it's a very, it's, it's a very sobering discussion to have. Uh, and I want to just take a moment and, and talk about that, yeah. because um, so I, I lost my sister, and and there was no no indication that she was in part of the faith when when I lost her in the car accident. And in that time, you have to wrestle with these. It's not just an academic exercise when you have someone close to you that that dies, and 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 you believe it's an eternal weight of torment. And so you have to you have to really think about this. And there's two ways to to look about, and I remember theological discussions at, at seminary where we spoke about it, just, I, I just wouldn't be part of that because people are just theoretical about what's going to happen. This is a really serious thing. I think it's Francis Chan says if we don't shed tears when we think about that existence, we haven't really grappled with what's going to come and happen to people. We need to be very sober that it's, not a, it's a serious subject. Um, and at the same time, when you're grappling with with people that you've lost, um, that you're not so sure if they were saved. We need to still say that God is wise, 
gracious, kind, and he knows better than we do. And we rest in his, <laughs> in his sovereign purposes and not in our. Um, and we have to rest in him, knowing that he's good to his, his people, and that's to us. And then one day, all our answers will be made clear. But it's a very, a very serious matter. We're going to move on for the sake of time. Then I get to popular interpretation of the end time events. How will all these events unfold? What must happen before Jesus returns? What will Jesus do when he returns? What happens to God's people as he works out his plan? These are questions that we all might have. Well, people have discussed these things over right throughout history. Um, the last 2,000 years of church history is, uh, is laden with examples of discussions and debates and differences of what that's going to look like. Uh, I think it's G.K. Chesterton that uh, wrote that John saw many wondrous and awful beasts in his apocalypse, but none such as awful and wonderful as some of his commentators. <laughs> so, so people really have grappled with, uh, with this. And the three predominant positions really are present in our time. That they aren't, they're not the three that were existent throughout the history, but three that are present uh, is uh, premillennialism, postmillennialism, and, and amillennialism. Uh, millennialism is a little bit of a tongue tie for me, so it's, you'll get it. It's all about the millennium, right? But it really comes down to Revelation chapter 20, um, and uh, it's, a, it's a long passage. Does someone want to read it out for us? Or uh, is everyone familiar with the passage? But we're not going to debate whether, which one's right in, the, in this class. So, so it, it comes down to that Revelation 20, verse 1 to 8, where it speaks about, and I'll just read the first two verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So there it is. That's millennium, for a thousand years. So Satan being bound for a thousand years, and then he threw him in the pit and shut it down and sealed over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. Now, most people, when they look at that, uh, say that, well, Satan is very much alive and well in our time, isn't he? <laughs> a lot of deception going on, and, uh, and we certainly can see his handiwork in the societal structures that we have. That's why the world is in chaos, because he's an anarchist, or it is an anarchist. I don't think there's a gender attached to the serpent. Um, so, so there really is evidence of, of him being around, but but the question is, what does it mean that he's been bound? Uh, now, the different positions really come down to different ways of understanding that, and from that, their interpretations follow. That he's bound from keeping deceiving the nations in terms of the gospel going to every nation now, where it didn't before. Now the gospel goes, and people are saved from every nation. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will receive the gospel. There will be people from every nation in glory. So he's bound in that sense, that he's not deceiving the nation they elect from receiving the gospel. Um, that throws a big question to, well, did he deceive the elect then before that? <laughs> you know, um, no, the, the elect's never been deceived. Um, <clears throat> but then, or some will say, well, this is definitely speaking of a future event when he's bound and there isn't going to be his activity at all. You know, the world's going to be good. The human beings are going to flourish and do well and we're all going to be good to one another and... Um, Jesus is going to return and establish a period of, of earthly peace for everyone uh, before the great judgment. So believers and unbelievers are going to coexist but really be good to each other, which, which is a wonderful kind of hope that we can have. For, and that's a premillennial position. Uh, well, there's some of that say, wait a minute, that church is going to advance so much that the church is going to bring in this kind of age where the church is going to be bound, binding Satan. You know, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Um, and that's the post-millennial position. People say it's a positive view of Christianity and its onslaught, its progress. Um, and we can think of all of those positions and say, yeah, you know, all of those have good elements to them. 
All of them have truth to them. But if we stuck with uh, just interpretations on Revelation, we, we kind of miss out on, on actually what they're trying to say. And all of these positions really are trying to grapple with prophecy in general. They're not just grappling with one text in Revelation. They're grappling with different prophecies about Jesus, His work, about His church, about the expansion, about what it is that we as believers have and uh, what this means for this period that we read in Revelation. So it's not just about one text. It's more about a variety of prophecies and how we put them together to come up with what we understand about this last eternal state. So the reason I say that is because that should produce in us humility. Every single person that holds to one of these positions is trying to grapple with the Scriptures and what they tell us about our hope that we have. And, uh, and everyone's going to use Scripture and prophecies, which is already a complex and difficult subject, to try and put those together in a way that helps them understand our role in, in society at present and, uh, and Jesus' authority through His church in the present. So it produces in us some humility. But looking at the three positions, I'll just basically go through um, them quickly. Um, so premillennialism, which we'll look at first, um, holds that Jesus' second coming will occur before the millennium. So there's the belief that before the thousand years, Jesus is going to return, and then he's going to establish this period of peace for all peoples, indiscriminately. And there are two predominant views within premillennialism. There's a historic premillennialism, um, and then there's dispensational premillennialism. Basic historic premillennialism just holds on to uh, um, the millennium as a period of peace for all peoples, and that Jesus reigns with his, with his people, the bride, the church, God's people from all, all ages. Um, we're all resurrected in that time, and uh, we enjoy this period of peace as His people, especially as His people, right all over the globe. And, um, and, and those who are not His people get to witness and, and enjoy the benefits of God's people as they live out their mandate that God has given to us in Scripture to, you know, to do good and society. And it, it'll be quite an amazing idea, you know. Think about, imagine if all of your government leaders and all of the cabinet and all of the house, the senate and everyone were completely regenerated, restrained from evil and just did good in society. Imagine just the United States alone. If you had a president that was a total believer and he couldn't do evil, and he elected for himself a, a judicial council that couldn't do evil, and, he, and there was a Senate that couldn't do evil, there was a House of Representatives that couldn't do evil, they could only do good as God has commanded. What would the USA look like, even if everyone else were a mixed bag? Laws would be just and righteous and good and enacted perfectly, and the whole society will flourish. That's what historic premillennialism say is the millennium is all about. Is that's what it's going to be. It's going to be a testimony to all nations. And in that time, all nations are going to bring tribute to Jesus. For example, Zechariah 14, if you want to go look at the whole chapter, speaks about that. The Messiah will receive tribute. He's going to be the conquering king in light of all the world, even though it's a mixed bag. Dispensationalism and premillennialism is a little different in that it says that Jesus is coming back specifically for Israel. He's going to be the king that's going to be sitting on the throne of David. And he's going to come back to Jerusalem. And within dispensationalism, there is movement as well now with all uh, positions. It's just disagreements and different streams. But classic dispensationalism teaches that it's going to reestablish the temple. Sacrifice is going to be made again. Um, and, and from there, all nations are going to come and bring and tribute the Gentile nations, which is including us. Kind of we get left out a little <laughs> the plan of Jesus and that, but that's classic dispensationalism. Uh, more progressive dispensationalism says, no, it's, it's the regenerate Jewish people, the Messianic Jews that are going to be elevated, and all Israel is going to return and flock because Israel is going to become this beautiful, blossoming country from where justice is going to flow. It's going to be like that, like the USA was that one righteous place. It's going to be, that's going to be Jerusalem. It's going to be that, and they're going to enact laws all over the world that's going to influence everyone, and it's going to be that sense good and just, and everyone's going to look at Messiah in that light. 
But really, the difference between historic pre-mill and dispensationalism is, is one is all about the church and the other one's about the Israel, particularly. And that's the two emphases, um, just in basic terms. Uh, there are many passages that speak um, uh, to these events. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4 to 5, Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15, and the interpretation of these. Anyone have any questions on, on that? Postmillennialism is, uh, is really the belief that the church, um, the church state is inaugurated after the destruction of the temple. The gospel goes out to all the world, and the church is going to increase. So much so that like every nation is going to become a Christian nation. Laws are going to be reflecting scripture. Um, like it's going to, you know, I kind of imagine that, that why, now I think if you're living around the uh, Jonathan Edwards period in the 1700s and you have the Great Awakening, the big revivals, and everyone's going to church, or the Welsh revival, right, where there's, there's stories of, of the police having nothing to do in certain towns, right? Prisons were empty, you know, where there was nothing to do because everyone's going to church, everyone's singing hymns. Now imagine if you're living in a period like that, you can imagine how you'll have a positive view of, of the expansion of Christianity. That's post-millennialism, that Christianity is going to influence and expand in every sector of the world, and has become, the world's going to become so Christianized and so good that, uh, that Jesus is going to come back to a pretty much set right world and then bring the final judgment. Um, so that's kind of a hopeful view of Christianity and progress of the church. Um, and some people fight for that in government. You see, it influences your political theory. Well, if that's the case, when you get in government and when you enact laws that will influence people. The, the big downfall of postmillennialism, I'm a, I'm a hopeful postmillennialist, you know. I'm, I'm a primal, <laughs> that's my position. But I'm a hopeful postmillennialist. I hope that's true. But really, the times of a revival, Jonathan Edwards' own time, the Great Awakening happened, and the children rose up, and they were more wicked than their parents were, you know. And John, Jonathan Edwards has struggled with, his, with the children in their town after the Great Awakening happened. You see, every generation, they need to be, the Lord needs to save us again. And we can lose all of that in one generation. Um, so it really isn't a, a proven theory yet, unfortunately. And then there's amillennialism, which is uh, saying basically what Garrett preached through the book of Revelation. So I'm not going to spend much time on that because he had it in a full lesson. I think he did an excellent job in the book of Revelation. Excellent job. And, and, and really what it is, if you want a simple, simple answer to what amillennialism is, is that all of Scripture is for all of God's people for all of time. Um, Sometimes dispensational and premillennialism takes revelation, and part of revelation is not for us. It's for Israel, right? Part of the Old Testament is not for us. It's for Israel. It's all about Israel. And that makes parts of God's words redundant for us because it's either still so future, it's, it's not applicable for us. But amillennialism tells you that all of that is going to give us hope and confidence in God. It's all of Scripture is for all of God's people, and I would hold to that wholeheartedly. Um, you can read the book of Revelation from chapters 4 right through to chapters 20 with confidence that that's intended to give you hope, intended to give you perseverance through your trials, intended to get you to conquer with Christ and to trust in Him. Um, so it really is believing that we are in the millennium right now. The church is a suffering church, which is different to post-millennialism. The church suffers the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And as we, as we go throughout the ages, Jesus is going to come back to a suffering church. He's going to gather and he's going to vindicate suffering, the suffering people by his final judgment, by raising them up and vindicating them, especially the martyrs. Any, uh, any questions on that? I want to end with just a few applications. And I'll go through these very quickly. There are verses there you can go look up for your own study. Firstly, keep the end in mind. <laughs> keep the end in mind. Eschatology is to give us hope and confidence in God's promises. Keep the end in mind. Live in light of the end. It changes the way you see the present in which you are. 
currently living, the way you view people. Make the most of your time. Use time well. Listen to this quote from John Piper. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will, will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from the lack of time. Yeah. You can always trust Piper to be a little bit more asceticism, right? <laughs> but, but it's sobering. How much time do you spend on social media? I know, sometimes I do my, my devotional time and I think to myself, oh, good, oh, I wonder what's happening online quickly, you know. Woof, there goes my prayer. <laughs> Gone. You know, so it's true what he says. I'm guilty of that. Make the most of your time. Beware of deceivers. No one knows the time and the end. We live in light of God's promises, not in light of people's predictions. Beware of deceivers. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin. Live a life that is, that is reflective of the life to come. Meditate on that life so that you may know how to live in the present. Strive towards holiness, but repent of your sin. Turn to Jesus. Take comfort from His shed blood. Evangelize the lost. Plead with your loved ones and your people. Not just with words and badgering, and, you know, but with your life as well with your prayers for them, the way you care for them and love them. And as we go, let us remember this truth. Romans 13 verse 11, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What a promise.